DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a great panel to start off our week of conversations. And before I introduce them, I just really kind of quickly want to say what a pleasure it was to be at St. Simon's Island yesterday. Um, Father Tom Purdy, the pastor of Christ Church down there, is leading a series of conversations over a period of weeks in which he is hoping to talk to his congregation and other visitors about how we can get past the divisive politics, the acrimoniousness of our times, and find a way to once again talk to each other. And he invited me to come down and uh, join that conversation. It was really, there were so many of you who are political rewind listeners in the audience, and I just can't tell you what an honor it is that you would take the time to uh, come out with me. Uh, Senator Mac Mattingly and his wife Leslie, uh, were there. Uh, Mac retired down there. It was really a great pleasure to get to see uh, him again. Um, and uh, there were just so many of you who came out, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that you did. I was also happy that Leo Smith, who you hear on the show with some regularity, came down with me because Leo is one of the leaders of the uh, Georgia uh, Democracy Resilience Network, an effort launched by the Carter Center, which in which they're going to try to bring together uh, business, civic, faith leaders to figure out ways that they can help us engage in smarter, more respectful conversations about politics, especially around the election. So thank you to all of you for your hospitality down there and your, your welcoming uh, uh, way of greeting me down there. All right, let's get right to the show today. Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes a political insider on Wednesdays and Sundays, it appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, how are you today? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Chauncey Elkhorn is back with us as well. He's a reporter for Capital B, the digital uh, news publication online that uh, particularly focuses on events in the uh, black community across the country and also right here in Atlanta. There's an Atlanta version of, uh, of, of the um, website. How are you, Chauncey? Well, I'm having a good one. I'm uh, reporting from uh, Savannah, Georgia, and uh, one of the stories working on about uh, voter engagement on HBCU campuses. But pleasure to be here as always, Bill. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an aspect of that during uh, the show today, so I'm glad you're with us. Alan Abramowitz is back with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Emory University. Hey, Alan, how are you? I'm great. Glad to be with you today. And Adrian Jones, uh, Professor of Political Science and also Director of Pre-Law at Morehouse College. Um, Adrian, how's the semester going for you so far? Good morning. Uh, it's going great. Um, and I'm excited to hear uh, what Chauncey has to say about, I feel like I'm breaking up. No, you're um, fine. The views of HBCU students. I'm working right now to make sure we have on-campus registration and 
deputization, if people uh, take action this week, because Friday is the last day to be deputized as a poll worker, um, and just trying to, you know, energize our campus uh, from within. And so I'm excited to learn more about uh, what some of my students and their counterparts are thinking and saying. All right. Yeah, I could understand that. All right. Um, look, we're going to talk a lot about Georgia politics, but Patricia, I, I really think it would be uh, wrong of us not to at least spend a moment on this remarkable uh, funeral that just unfolded in uh, London. Um, and what I found so fascinating about it, Patricia, was not only all of the important world leaders, not only uh, the royal family, all of the hoopla around all of them, but the New York Times had a piece this morning about the commoners who were invited to be part of this funeral. Um, for instance, they pointed out there was an 88-year-old woman from London who records audiobooks for the blind. There was a man from Manchester or near Manchester who led a campaign to save his so local soccer club. There was a woman who was a survivor of an awful uh, knife attack, and she has gone on to start an organization focused on, uh, on, on just the trauma of what happens in attacks like those. And I'll just read you a quick quote from her. She said, I thought it was a sales call and was going to ignore it. Luckily, I answered, and a very posh gentleman informed me he was from the cabinet office, followed by a very posh invitation to the funeral. So here's my question, Patricia. Uh, we know that there are problematic things about, about the, you know, what's left of the British Empire. But can you imagine any American leader who would get this extraordinary unifying acclaim uh, around uh, 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 the death as she has? Well, at the moment, no. Um, no, of course, Queen Elizabeth went to great pains not to be a political leader. And seeing the outpouring of just very personal, genuine affection from so many people um, in London and really around the world, it really shows, I think, how much we need leaders who are not political leaders, who are either um, kind of uh, giants of philanthropy, of government, of um, uh, religion, of uh, kind of just any any community that people can believe in and be a part of and be proud of. Um, and it feels like we are really far away from that right now. Um, it's definitely an inflection point for this monarchy about its role in the world, past and present. Um, I think all of those conversations are going to happen, but it's amazing how willing people were to wait for those conversations until Queen Elizabeth, who people widely admired, until she had died and had a proper burial. And now it feels like now we're going to start talking about a lot of those things as well. But her role has been really impressive to watch. Um, you know, Alan, I had the same thought that Patricia did. Um, it, it's because we don't have a leader right now above politics uh, who is admired, widely, I don't think, for, as Patricia points out, philanthropy, um, for their religious leader. I mean, I guess there was a time when um, people like Billy Graham brought, united a lot of people in the Christian world, and there were people of other denominations who admired him too, but we just don't, politics has somehow... Uh, Take, someone has swallowed up all of the leaders who uh, at an, in another era might have been acclaimed in a, in a much more universal way here. Uh, I, th I think that's right. That, uh, it's hard to think of anyone right now uh, in any 
uh, major field of endeavor in the United States uh, in a leadership position who, uh, you know, is in the public eye who doesn't, hasn't gotten caught up in the partisan divisions in the country. Um, I mean, there are business leaders and religious leaders who try to stay away from politics, but um, there's nobody with that kind of stature who could rise above politics. At the same time, you know, I think it's important to remember when you look at what's going on right now in Britain, that country is in big trouble. Um, there are deep, deep divisions there. They're facing uh, an economic crisis that's worse by far than what we're facing here. Um, leadership turnover, you know, there's no confidence in, I think, the political leadership over there. So, you know, all of that unity around uh, the Queen and the, and, and the royal family, I think, it doesn't really have much. The practical consequences in terms of politics and governance, I think, are very, very limited. Yeah, but it's at least a moment when people seem to be uh, uh, united in some way, even if it's not going to undo all of the problems they face. Chauncey, capital B, had a uh, pretty uh, uh, interesting piece on all this, pointing out that the queen, as a representative of the Commonwealth, her relationship with the nations uh, in the Commonwealth, people of color, was a little bit more complicated than the way it was viewed uh, largely in uh, England itself. Complicated to say the least. I would say complicated in England as well. And uh, a lot of these uh, long simmering feelings have kind of bubbled up um, uh, ever since Meghan Markle stepped into the fray um, and uh, married uh, into the royal family. Um, yeah, when my colleague uh, Christina Carrega uh, wrote uh, a piece uh, called the, the Black Diaspora's Complicated Feelings About Queen Elizabeth's Death. And yeah, you've seen this if you were on Twitter um, once the news broke, you saw uh, there's a, a subsection of Twitter that people refer to as Black Twitter, and there was a, a large uh, segment of the population. You know, there was with some folks were you know kind of like the wedding, the the death of the Queen. Others, some people were celebrating it um, because of the history of colonialism that uh, the uh, British Empire has, and still to some, uh, to some extent in certain parts of the world. Uh, has enjoyed, and um, particularly Antigua is a country that still uh, is technically uh, under British monarch, uh, monarchy rule. And uh, I believe the prime minister, one of the uh, um, elements of the story Christina talked about, uh, uh, the uh, leader of Antigua is now uh, following the death of the queen, pushing to make the, the country uh, a republic instead of, uh, you know, one of the remaining colonies. So it's, it's certainly uh, a complicated situation there. For, and the Meghan Markle controversies that have surfaced with how she's been treated um, has also exacerbated that. Adrian, you want to uh, get a last word in on this? Um, I think people are upset that uh, some of this discussion about the treatment of British colonies is being discussed. But I think for Americans in particular, um, it's a good opportunity in the midst of our CRT stress to um, you know, see the schism between what we perceive as our democracy and equality and the ideals that we're supposed to be living um, to, which derive, you know, we, we were a colony ourselves of Great Britain. Um, and so to be able to see that Black Lives Matter is not just an issue in the United States, but it is global, and that uh, people are struggling with 
you know, what, who was the queen? What is the monarchy? What does that represent? Um, and I personally think that, you know, as much as we might mourn the queen, that it is important for us to talk about these political relationships and how they've affected black people in the diaspora. Yeah. Well, well, thank you all for uh, uh, talking about that just for a, a short period of time, uh, be, because um, as I said, I think it was something we really, after seeing this funeral unfold, I wanted to hear your thoughts on. All right, Patricia, speaking of acrimonious and divisive, you all broke a story at the AJC in the middle or late last week, you'll tell me when, about a flyer, a digital flyer from the uh, Forsyth County Republican Party. Stacey Abrams was scheduled to be up there yesterday, which she did do, um, but earlier uh, last week, the Forsyth County Republicans sent out a flyer which uh, said, conservatives and patriots unite. This is a call to action to save and protect our neighborhoods, our communities, and our county. The moment is at hand. The designers of destructive radicalism and socialism are crossing over our county borders and into coming. Talking <laughs> then about Stacey Abrams and fellow comrades of hatred and division who will be rallying up there. They treated this as if she were an enemy invader crossing uh, county lines. And of course, all of this, all of this reminds too many of us of the very troubling past on, in, in terms of Forsyth County and its relationship to black citizens. Patricia, talk to us about this. Uh, yeah, so uh, the AJC broke the news about that flyer on Friday morning. It had gone out um, in about midweek out to Republicans in Versailles County um, to uh, get a counter-protest or a rally going to protest Stacey Abrams uh, coming to Versailles County and specifically crossing over our county border. Um, and you don't have to know, you don't have to know much about Georgia history to know that Versailles County um, was an all-white county, and that is because there had been literally a racial cleansing there in 1912, um, and uh, black citizens forced out of that county, which remained all white for quite some time. And really, if you had pulled the language of this flyer and put it in a history book from any time between 1910 to 1985, um, it 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 could just belong right there. It really was a page out of a really, really ugly past for Forsyth County. And um, so that's why that got our attention. And it obviously was deeply offensive to Democrats who live in the county. You know, it is obviously no longer an all-white county. Democrats live there. And it's certainly one of those exurban counties that Democrats want to start to um, push their numbers up in order to start winning statewide consistently. And so um, that's why Stacey Abrams was going into Forsyth County, and she did go to Forsyth County and yeah. um, uh, did it nonetheless. They dropped that counter-protest, they said, to err on the side of caution um, because we had reported on it and it looked really bad. And so um, they decided not to do that. Governor Kemp will be campaigning there uh, later this week. Um, Adrian, uh, Forsyth County was known as a sundown County. Explain what a sundown county was, especially in the South. A sundown county is a county where black people should not be after sundown, um, lest they risk their lives. Um, I was intrigued by this Forsyth County flyer. First of all, um, I understand a little bit, only a touch now that I got the opportunity to read the AJC about Forsyth County, but I know a lot about the history of Georgia and its dedicated to 
white supremacy. And it seems to me that part of that mission is not to have black people, black women, become the governor of the state, right? So she's an enemy of the state. She's crossing borders that have not been crossed, um, at least attempting to. And um, I think we're seeing some of the latent and now active or continuing to be active attitudes of our statesmen, you know, just like we're seeing it nationwide. And again, we need to be paying attention to these schisms um, and the difference between our attempt to engage in democracy um, and the reality of things on the ground. Chauncey? Yeah, I was gonna, I was, it was pretty striking to hear the news about this. Um, the biggest thing is that um, we've seen some of the messaging um, um, from the GOP side and the uh, political action committees that support them, kind of framing um, Ms. Abrams and uh, this in this light of, and not, I don't want to say an invading force, but uh, we talked a lot about the changing demographics of Georgia, 1.6 million new voters, a lot more people of color. And the, the undertone of all of that is that, you know, she represents this uh, othering of the of, of people that are coming into the state that are not uh, either are not true Georgians or, you know, don't represent the values of a lot of folks on the right. And, uh, you know, it, it is something that I think um, uh, Ms. Abrams has worked hard to try with the, her one Georgia message of, this, of unity to say, you know, we're all, we are one people and not divided, um, you know, based on skin color or culture or things of that nature. So um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, some of this stuff is kind of, you know, it's in your face. It's not really Obviously, Ms. Abrams is an African-American woman, um, and uh, as well as, uh, you know, Raphael Warnock being the first uh, black senator in the history of the state. And, um, the, you know, they, when you're in a state with, this, with the history that Georgia has and in the South, you try to frame things in a way politically on, when you're a uh, Democrat to try to bring people together. And there's been folks who, who have, you know, pushed back against that framing. And, you know, it's, they say that it's kind of reductive or it's not really uh, – uh, acknowledging the situation as it is and the racial dynamics of politics in the state. So, Alan, over the weekend, Maureen Dowd had a really interesting column in the New York Times in which she talked about the fact that um, uh, it used to be, uh, especially on the Republican side, that uh, candidates for office left the dirty work to advisors. And she points out Lee Atwater is an example of that uh, when he worked uh, with George H.W. Bush, uh, you know, the Willie Horton uh, ad that became uh, so infamous uh, during the, mm-hmm. the, his campaign against mm-hmm. Michael Dukakis. And she said, but she points out that Donald Trump has decided he's willing to do what she calls the wet work himself. He goes there himself. He no longer relies on somebody to protect him. And I thought about that in the context of this, because what It seems to me, and you'll tell me if you think I'm wrong, Trump has enabled uh, Republicans to be willing to go places very openly um, that they may have been a little bit nervous about going at another point in time. This flyer Mm -hmm. is so offensive Mm -hmm. in such an open and blatant way that, among other things, I don't understand how they really think it's going to be effective in a general election. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're absolutely right about that. And I, I don't think it's really started with Trump, um, you know, but I, this is sort of more o- o- willingness to engage in sort of like overt uh, racial messaging 
Um, certainly, Trump took this to a new level, um, you know, with his attacks on immigrants, with his, of course, starting off with his uh, questioning whether Barack Obama was actually a citizen of the United States and eligible to serve as president, and then continuing all the way through the questioning of the legitimacy of the 2020 election, because it's all part and parcel of the same thing. When you look at the uh, big lie and the efforts to undermine the 2020 election, the attacks on election integrity focused very, very overwhelmingly and clearly on African-American cities. Uh, so where is this voter fraud taking place? According to Trump and his allies, it's taking place in Philadelphia, in Detroit, you know, in, uh, in Atlanta, in, in places where you have these large uh, minority and especially African-American populations of leaders. And the message is those folks, that's not, they're, they're not, their vote is, quest, is, is very much in doubt. I mean, we should question legitimacy of their, uh, of their vote. Um, so I think that's part and parcel of this, this sort of racial messaging that we're seeing continue. Um, we're going to see it. We're seeing it in 2022. The New York Times just had a story, I think, about the fact that so many Republican candidates right now in the midterm elections are refusing to uh, uh, refusing to say they, they will accept the election results. They just won't say. You know, if they lose, they, they may or may not accept the election results. That's a continuation of what we saw Trump do in 2020. We can expect to see more of this in 2022 and 2024. And there's definitely a racial uh, component to all of it. Well, I think the, um, the question of race is going to be really, really important. The racial dynamics, hugely important to watch in the governor's race as well as the U.S. Senate race. Mm -hmm. um, having Herschel Walker as the nominee, I think, has given uh, Republicans um, to feel like they have a lot of leeway in their messaging um, because they can say, Herschel Walker's our nominee. Who's racist around here? You, what are mm -hmm. you talking about? And I've heard them say that back to me. Um, there's an ad against Raphael Warnock right now from Republicans um, accusing him of giving uh, stimulus funds to convicted felons, and it has a huge jail cell slamming the door on the black man, it is just incredibly racialized um, to, to sort of fall into all of these tropes of um, black criminals and uh, black people getting money from the state they don't deserve. It's just, it's so inappropriate, but it's just out there in the open um, against Raphael Warnock. Um, at the same time, when you dig into some of the crosstabs in our polling, um, Stacey Walker has been trailing and lagging in black support. Um, that may be changing. Um, we have an AJC poll coming out, and that will be the number that we look at very closely. She had an 80% black support in our last AJC poll over the summer. Um, and uh, that number must move up in order for her to be competitive statewide, up to 90 plus percent. And so um, we will, that'll be just really important to see um, is that changing? Is that a trend that's moving in the other direction? Well, and of course, Chauncey, we also now have in that Warnock-Walker fight uh, ads that for, for Walker that accuse Warnock of essentially being a racist himself, um, being an anti-white U.S. senator. 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, you can't get much more complex and strange than one black candidate accusing another of being a racist against white people. Well, I, I don't, in the, in the era of Donald Trump, I don't think it's that strange. Uh, we've seen other folks, um, um, pundits on the right, um, uh, you know, the uh, kind of diamond and silk kind of crowd uh, uh, that you see on Fox News talking about things in this in this light and framing it the uh, you know racial politics as though um, white people are the real victims of racism in this day and age and that's the advantage that um, having a candidate a black candidate that's willing to stop those kind of talking points will give you um, I do think uh, as regards to the discussion about the uh, the black vote I know that that's uh, a story that I've file that we are that I've been working on and looking deeper into that uh, conversation since that story broke a couple of weeks ago. Um, there has been certainly some disenchantment um, amongst African Americans throughout the state as it relates to the Democratic Party, um, more so um, on issues that they feel like they were not delivered. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, policy proposals at the federal level, but Ms. Abrams, um, who I spoke to briefly um, at a recent event, um, downtown at the at the uh, the Met, um, where she's been hosting uh, an event for aimed at black men with uh, radio personality Charlamagne the God. She points out that you you know folks uh, don't necessarily always understand the relationship between the federal government and what they're doing at the federal government level versus the state level and what the governor is doing. And a lot of the animus uh, she um, argued should be pointed and aimed at the state, and which has been run by Republicans for, you know, for, for a long time, for, you know, uh, more than 10 years, uh, recover Republican control. So I think that that's something that, uh, that's a message that uh, is still getting out there. And with uh, some of the victories at, at Capitol Hill that they've had as of late on student um, debt relief and the um, Inflation Reduction Act and other items, I think Democrats have uh, still got some messaging to get out there about that. By the way, Adrian, uh, it's more like almost 20 years. It was 2003 when uh, Sonny Perdue shocked the state by uh, beating Roy Barnes uh, in the race for governor. And uh, the entire uh, 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 constitutional officers of the state became Republican uh, in the subsequent years. And so there's been almost 20 years, and in the legislature as well, controlled by Republicans. It's been almost 20 years. Uh, that uh, Republicans have been in charge. Uh, Adrian, uh, your thoughts on this? Um, I guess I'm, I mean, now that we're in this era of very vocal, um, racially based political messaging, I want to remind everyone that we've been in this posture, you know, for years, right? Our black voters, for example, legitimate voters. We had almost a century of Jim Crow um, and now we're in a situation where we continue to ch- attempt to undermine um, the validity of the black vote, right? We're trying to keep that in question uh, so that it can be challenged. And so I think that some of that is happening here. And it doesn't matter that both of the candidates are black. They're going to use some of these same tropes. I mean, we've got Warnock depicting Walker in um, that I abused my wife's message, right, as the dangerous black man. I mean, should that be happening? I don't think so. But this is a well-worn trope that people are going to relate to. This is going to, you know, evoke um, fear of uh, white women uh, being 
violated by black men and um, you know black men being a danger. I mean, just because Herschel Walker is the black candidate doesn't mean that he doesn't pick up on his party's line. Um, just like Maria de la Cruz, is that her name, in Texas, where, um, you know, she's a Trump candidate. You would think that um, she wouldn't be pro-border <laughs> wall, but she's mm-hmm. all the way Trump. All right. Uh, thank you for that part of the conversation. Um, I tell you what we got to do. We've got to get to a break. We got a lot more to talk about on the show. We will do that after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Adrian, Adrian Jones, Alan Abramowitz, Chauncey Alcorn, and Patricia Murphy on today's Political Rewind. Patricia, uh, Joel's had some really good items this morning. Uh, and I want to talk uh, just briefly about one of them. Uh, <laughs> you have an item in there about Herschel Walker. We, we've Since this debate was set for October 14th down in Savannah, there's been conversation, we've done it on this show, about whether... Um, the expectations for Herschel Walker's performance are so low that he can't help but succeed unless he says something outrageous that becomes a good bumper sticker or soundbite for Democrats. Uh, and what you point out of the jolt is that Walker himself is contributing to efforts to lower expectations for what he can do. You, you quote him as he was down at the Port of Savannah. He called himself a country boy. I'm not that smart, he said. He's a preacher, Warnock. He's mm. smart. He wears these nice suits, so he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October 14th, and I'm just waiting to show up, and I will do my best. Smart strategy, uh, and, you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out. Yes, that was uh, reporting uh, that we uh, borrowed from the Savannah Morning News and credited them, of course. Um, so the Savannah Morning News had this uh, just little report at the end of the week last week, and that definitely caught our eyes because Democrats have been furious that they feel like Herschel Walker is getting graded on a curve, in their opinion, that as long as he doesn't um, uh, jump off a bridge at this point, no one's going to say, wow, Herschel Walker did a terrible job today. They feel like the expectations of him are already so low um, that if he just sort of keeps it together and doesn't say anything that is 100% confusing and contradictory, um, then he will, quote, win the debate. So Herschel Walker, <laughs> not unwisely, is playing straight into that. Now, this is a completely different tone from before he accepted his debate in Savannah when he was uh, issuing challenges to Raphael Warnock to name the time and the place and quote, we can get it on. And then he was uh, taunting Raphael Warnock to put on your big boy pants and come debate me. So now that this debate has been scheduled, they are dropping that expectation bar extremely low. They say, hey, I'm not even very smart. I mean, I hope I do okay, but I may not. But he, listen, this is his job. He ought to do well. You know, he's talking about uh, Raphael Warnock. So the, it makes Democrats' heads explode. <laughs> 
when they feel like <laughs> the same measurements are not being applied to both of these gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, Alan. Well, this is a fairly, you know, this is a fairly common strategy that we see in the run-up to these sorts of debates. That uh, usually both both candidates uh, try to lower the expectations about their performance before the debate actually takes place, so that regardless of almost regardless of what happens, you know, they can come out and say, "Oh, I won." You know, look, I won just because I didn't fall flat on my face. That must mean that I won. Uh, it's a lot, there's a lot of gamesmanship involved in this. The reality here, I think, is that I would be very nervous if I was a Republican going into this debate at what, what uh, Herschel Walker is going to say and do. I mean, uh, he has a history here of making out, outrageous statements, making incoherent statements. Um, you know, one of the things that the Walker campaign was pushing for, it was they wanted to know the subjects that would be covered in the debate, the topics in advance, presumably so that he could memorize some answers or at least be prepared to make some sort of coherent answers. So, but that's not going to be the case. And um, so regardless of how low the expectations are right now, I happen to think that Herschel Walker is perfectly capable of underperforming those expectations. Now we'll see <laughs> what, what, what happens, but um, I don't necessarily think that this is, um, I think this, this type of debate is going to be very challenging uh, for Walker. Now, now Warnock needs to be careful too. He needs to not, um, you know, uh, uh, come across as too as arrogant um, and a know-it-all. Um, but yeah. I, I think they'll be pretty well-prepared. And he's debated before. So uh, Herschel Walker has never debated anyone. I mean, I've been thinking about this, and I've been confounded for weeks. You know, how is this guy on the ballot? So Herschel Walker is doing his job, right? It doesn't matter how well he does in this debate. He's a black candidate for the GOP. He's got celebrity that nobody in this state has that I've seen ever. And he's going to vote the way that the GOP wants them mm-hmm. to in the event that he is elected. And no one is confused about that. I don't care what he says. Him characterizing himself as a country boy is an excellent method. We're in Georgia, right, where people want to be comfortable with their candidate. He's their family. He takes care of them. It doesn't matter. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the Walker campaign knows that. And so it's not about Lovar. It's about he's already doing his job. And if he wins this election, you know, it's a benefit to the GOP balance in the Senate. Yeah, I was going to uh, age just throw my thunder a little bit there, but she, she's absolutely right. I think the interesting thing uh, that I have uh, observed about Herschel Walker is up until this latest Quinnipiac poll, um, as much as, as news has been broken about, uh, you know, his misstatements regarding his how many children he has and taking care of and criticizing other black fathers for not doing the same um, and, his, uh, res- and his extensive resume, his poll numbers have gone up not down, um, as, as opposed to the latest Quinnipiac poll. Yeah, the, the, the latest Quinnipiac poll has, has uh, Warnock winning, but most of the polls leading up to this uh, race in the hypothetical matchup had uh, Warnock up. And now, you know, a lot of the polls uh, up until the, this latest one had Walker winning. So the, he actually was starting to poll better, which I think underscores Adrian's point, which is I don't think this is going to really make much of a difference. Everybody who knows 
and is listening to Herschel Walker speak feels how, the way that they feel about it one way or the other. Um, and also there's this, um, and since the rise of Donald Trump, you have this kind of anti-intellectualism and anti-elitist, anti-establishment fervor on the right that kind of resents a lot of the left and, um, you know, news pundits and others who like look in, and make fun of Herschel Walker. And a lot of people on the right don't like that. They think that um, folks on the left and uh, people in the media think that they're stupid and that they're unsophisticated. So, you know, pointing these things out is actually, I think, somewhat counterintuitive or it doesn't necessarily work in their favor as well. I mean, I, I actually agree with a lot of what you just said. But this, the electorate in this state, look, is extremely polarized. And so, you know, the, the way Walker's conducting himself and the, the Walker campaign plays, clearly plays to the Trump base in the state. No question about it. But this election is actually going to be decided, I think, by a very small fraction of the electorate who are persuadable uh, and who, can, who could conceivably go one way or the other. Right now, what we're seeing in the polls is that um, Warnock is consistently running a few points ahead of Stacey Abrams. So where most of the polls have showed Stacey Abrams is trailing Brian Kemp by an average of about four points, something like that. Warnock has actually been leading on average uh, by a couple of points. Now, the polls vary a lot. I don't have much confidence in a lot of these polls. There's some pretty sketchy polls out there. If you see uh, the name Trafalgar on it, I would definitely ignore that poll. <laughs> I want to see what the HAC poll tells. I mean, the HAC poll, to my mind, is one of the highest quality polls that we get uh, in the state. So I'm waiting, waiting to see what they have to say. But there is this gap. Almost every poll does show this gap that Warnock is running ahead of Abrams. Uh, and the reason for that is that you've got this very small group of people who, believe it or not, are voting for Camp and Warnock. Um, and I think that's the, the, the message of the Warnock campaign has been aimed very much, I think, at appealing to this group of swing voters, as well as, you know, of course, reinforcing the support among the, uh, the core Democratic base voters. But that, that's where it's going to be decided. It's not going to be the Trump base. Uh, it's not going to be the Democratic base. It's going to be because the state is so closely divided. It's going to be the small group of persuadable voters, um, depending on which way they, they swing uh, in both of these elections. Uh, Patricia? Yeah, no, to, to drill into that a little bit more, um, we are talking to Republicans who have focus groups. Um, so that they can find out sort of where their candidates are, what are they hearing. The one group that Herschel Walker must win over are Republicans who don't think he can do this job. Um, even if he's told how to vote, uh, they're not comfortable with him right now. It's a small group of Republicans. It's the people who are voting for Brian Kemp and do not, and they know Herschel Walker. They think he's a great football player. Um, they really are not that bothered by his history with women, not that bothered by um, the fact that he didn't live in Georgia for 40 years. They are, mm. they are concerned about his ability just to do the basics of this job. If, they, if he can meet that, the basic bar, they will vote for Herschel Walker, but he's not there yet with them. Wow, thank you for a really good discussion on all of that. Let's get to our final break of the show right now when we back. Uh, we'll have more on Political Rewind.
Patricia, Mur Patricia Murphy, you had a column uh, the other day in which you said, uh, here are five elements to be watching for as we move toward Election Day. Um, it's a column that people should read. The, the top item on your list was new voters. And if you don't mind my reading a few of your words, you said, a top dynamic to watch is the 1.6 million newly registered voters since 2018 who will make up about one-fifth of the electorate. They're a combination of recent transplants, newly eligible young voters who turned 18 since the last election, and anyone who wasn't automatically registered through the state's motor voter process. Um, so, Patricia, they're going to be a big factor in the election. What do you make of it? Well, it is giving both campaigns a lot to do. Um, those are, that is an enormous number of people who were not around for the last time that Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams ran against each other. Um, it is, however, uh, it's a little bit different in Georgia because people are automatically registered to vote when you get a driver's license. A huge surge in new voters doesn't necessarily, doesn't always mean a huge surge in people interested in voting in November. Um, so that's why polling is very important, focus groups are very important, and a really important metric that Democrats are pointing to are the number of mail-in ballot applications that are coming in. And they see in that data that they feel like is very promising, an increase in female voters uh, saying they want to vote early, young voters, um, voters of color. So they, they feel like that's the data that matters. But just from a from a process standpoint and a persuasion standpoint, that is a lot of new people that these campaigns have to understand who they are, where they are, what they want, and what are they looking for in their leaders. And it's just, it's an, another element of the unknown for these campaigns to be dealing with heading into uh, November. So it's not a true rematch between these two candidates because the state has changed a great deal even in just four years. Yeah. And Chauncey, this plays right into where the reason you're in Savannah. You're looking at young voters at HBCUs and uh, what they're thinking about as they approach, perhaps, in many cases, their very first election. Yeah. So I've been uh, since Friday, I've been traveling, um, shadowing uh, Black Voters Matter and some of the partner organizations, uh, including the Georgia NAACP and others, as they work on their youth renaissance tour. It's basically just a uh, um, uh, a trip through um, Central and Southern Georgia to HBCU campuses, including Albany State, Fort Valley State, and I'm currently at uh, Savannah State on on the coast. And uh, just talking, um, first and foremost, uh, they're just uh, trying to make sure folks are registered to vote if they if they uh, choose to do so, and that they're uh, some of them are you know doing voter pledges to you know saying that they do intend to vote and exercise their um, right to do so. Um, and there, yeah, there's a lot of folks that are energized. Um, and there, the, the one issue I think that has been the most uh, uh, prominent that I've heard, especially from um, young black women, is uh, the issue of uh, the Dobbs decision and the uh, reenactment of the state's uh, abortion uh, restriction law from 2019. Um, folks that, um, that don't necessarily follow politics very closely are well aware of that ruling and uh, that uh, reenactment of that law. And uh, it seems that it, I think that has been a galvanizing force for a lot of folks on the left, uh, particularly in the black community, that may feel, uh, you know, disappointed um, federally about what Democrats are doing, but they're very concerned about that and what will happen if Republicans do uh, or gain power once again. 
Adrian, you talk, you talked about the fact that that's one of the things you're working on at Morehouse is you know in energizing uh, students to get out there and uh, vote. I'm interested in energizing people not just to vote, but to participate more broadly. Um, from my perspective, you know, democracy is under threat. And if we don't vote now, we may not be able to vote in the future. Um, and I was excited last to listen to the Lauren War, Var- I'm sorry, the <laughs> Lauren Go Wargo. Lauren Go Wargo, who was on Thank our show you. on so, Thursday. Um, and <laughs> That's I all right. She did a great job at. Um, I was happy to hear that the Abrams campaign is looking to make sure that they um, address each different type of voter in the state. Um, I think that people think sometimes that black people or Latinos or um, any particular designation are all the same, and we are not. Um, And so not only do black voters and young black voters need attention, but they need attention based upon um, their specific interests and ideas about uh, the, you know, whatever the current election is. And I'm hoping that this kind of attention continues during non-election years. Alan? Well, I I think this question of the youth turnout is going to be crucial um, in, in this election and across the whole country, actually. And one of the reasons why I think uh, we've been seeing some improvements in the outlook for Democrats uh, in the midterm elections in general uh, in recent in the last few weeks is because of the fact that a lot of young people, I think, have become more involved and energized and interested in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision um, because of that that issue of that issue of abortion is so salient, I think, especially the younger people. I want to also say, though, this, um, you know, this inc- <clears throat> remarkable number of new voters in the state of Georgia since 2018, this is actually a continuation of a trend that's been going on here for quite some time. So Georgia is a state that, you know, among all the states in the country, is w- one of the most rapidly growing populations. Um, we've, seen, you know, we've seen over the last, you know, several t- 20 years or more, uh, a influx of newcomers, particularly in Metro Atlanta, uh, African American uh, uh, voters or people moving back into the state. Um, so it's been quite, quite remarkable. And I think that uh, um, the changing demographics of the state are sort of the big, the big underlying trend. You know that sort of uh, affects everything else, um, but it's you know it's it affects it more gradually. So it's not like a, you know, some, suddenly going to have a huge impact in a particular election. But you know, Patricia, in the long term, uh, it's very significant. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Ellen. Patricia, Republicans in the state rightly point out that uh, the automatic voter registration, when you get a driver's license, which was something uh, that was initiated by Brian Kemp when he was Secretary of State, has been a, a broadening of the electorate. This is an example of that. I mean, we have, I mean, an, an enormously high percentage of Georgians are registered to vote now. That doesn't mean, as you pointed out, they all go to the polls. They don't. But your car, colleague, uh, Mark Nisi, wrote a really interesting piece the other day looking at uh, ballot access and comparing Georgia to other states, and we rank pretty low. Um, on the, we're somewhere in the middle of the pack nationally in terms of the ease to getting uh, a, to cast a ballot. And one of the things he points out, of course, 
is that applying for an absentee ballot has become much more complicated because you can't do it online. You've got to have paper now. you got to have access to a printer. So, I, I mean, our Republicans are going to argue things are better. Democrats uh, say there are so many obstacles that it's going to really have a big impact in November. Yes, I think especially if you compare uh, voting by mail to 2020, um, it is much more difficult. Um, in 2020, there were drop boxes all over the state, especially in large counties like Fulton County, um, placed outside of voting locations 24 hours a day with video monitors um, for security. Um, you could apply for a ballot application online. Now, as you said, you need to print that out, physically sign it. And then you can upload that back up or mail it in, but you must physically sign that. You can't just do the electronic signature that your bank lets you use for a million dollar loan. You know, it's just, it is, it is, there are a number of changes and uh, Republicans will say, hey, there were no drop boxes in 2018. You know, this was just for COVID and you're, we are, they really, really pat themselves on the back for putting it into law that a drop box is legal. You know, however, it is now, inside a polling location. You can't skip the line to get to your ballot drop box and it's only during voting hours. So it really defeats the purpose of those um, of those voting drop boxes. So it has been, um, there is an outside group that said, particularly since 2020 access has been um, reduced in many ways. In some counties, there are additional um, early voting days, early in-person voting days than there used to be. Um, but overall, the picture is it's just harder to vote, especially by mail. And that is uh, a process that Republicans, especially Donald Trump, have been very um, vocally against uh, over the last two years. Right. Of course, because it was, you know, Trump who thought he had won the 2020 election mm-hmm. on election night. He claimed he had because of the, the uh, votes that had been counted. You know, whether he really believed he won or not, we'll never know. But he said he did. But it was then the surge of absentee votes, among other things, that really put Joe Biden out ahead. And that has in many ways informed how the state legislature here uh, passed SB 202, uh, which did, in fact, make it harder to get an absentee ballot, harder to uh, get to a drop box and the like. So. Um, we're going to watch and see what that 1.6 million people do in terms of uh, what happens in this election. We are completely out of time for today's show, and I'm really sorry we are, because I would love to have another hour to talk with this great uh, panel. I don't have that, however. So Adrian Jones, Chauncey Alcorn, Alan Abramowitz, and Patricia Murphy, thank you so much for being here for today's Political Rewind. Uh, two quick notes. Uh, yes, Lauren Growargo, campaign manager for oh. Stacey Abrams, talked with Patricia Murphy and I on our show last week. This week, we're going to have a high-ranking official from the Kemp campaign on, because fair is fair. That'll be on a Wednesday show. Also, we, you know, we're getting set to do our new uh, Political Rewind newsletter. Some of you down there in St. Simon said you read it religiously. Thank you for that. Go to gpb.org slash newsletters and become a subscriber. Thanks for being with us today, everybody. Thanks to the panel. Back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.